Happy Valentine's Day, guys. So I promised this to be an incredible podcast, and, well, I can safely say thanks to Becca. It is going to be absolutely fantastic, and I am so honored to have this guest today. So guys, without further ado, I'd love to introduce you to Holly Williams. How are you? I'm not too bad, thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um, so yeah, we you were a surprise guest, um, <laughs> and I was super excited to have you. So tell us a little bit about your book, because it sounds truly awesome. Sure. So it's called uh, What Time Is Love, and it's a novel. Um, it's a novel in three parts. So it sort of speculates what would happen if one couple had sort of three different shots at relationship, but falling in love and making it work. Um, so my characters are Violet and Albert, and you meet them at three different times in the 20th century. So the first time is in 1947, and then in 1967, and then 1987. Um, but they're always 20 when they first meet, so it's a kind of like three different goes at it at three different times. Um, and the idea really was just to look at how changing times, um, things in society that shift, like um, social mobility or gender expectations, um, kind of privilege, opportunity, changes in culture and all that sort of stuff, how that might impact on your romantic relationship. Um, and so, yeah, as well as being kind of those three characters in three different situations, um, it also looks at how particularly the female character is sort of her emancipation as well over three different eras, I guess, looking at women's kind of changing roles. Um, in the latter half of the 20th century which was obviously a time when those changed like quite massively so it did yeah. and it's such a it's such an amazing topic to be doing especially since i mean if you look from 2000 to what we have now as women it's huge mm. it, the, the difference is so massive you know um so i think it's incredible to be able to sort of represent that topic because it's not something we discuss a lot of as women, if you think on it. We, you know, it's not, not a big topic we discuss. And I think that's good because it might bring forth sort of a perspective of being happy at, and seeing how far we've come and what we've achieved as, you know, for our gender, in a way. Mm. Yeah, I think um, it definitely, you know, looked at the progress that women have made. I didn't want to make it too completely cut and dry you know without giving any spoilers there are things that are still pressures the, the, course, the book yeah. comes up to sort of 1997 which was obviously a moment of sort of big change and optimism in the UK and maybe with hindsight we look back on those moments like oh the optimism of the 60s and the optimism of um like 90s and think well some of that optimism didn't quite play out <laughs> I think it didn't really yep. change in the way we necessarily wanted but it's nice to write in those moments of excitement like post-war everything felt kind of like it was changing and different and opening up and the um you know the welfare state was being established things like that so each one is definitely at a time when you're like oh this is really exciting things are really changing everything's going to be better and then we as readers in 2023 can be like yes and no <laughs> yeah I, I think it's it's great because there is going to be some pressures for women that will translate any year, mm. any era, because they still exist today. Yeah. And I think that's good because we need to kind of look at this and say, what is it realistically we want to change moving forward and what 
realistically can't we change because we see from evidence over you know these long periods of time they just don't change mm. you know so i i think i think that's fantastic and i was so excited to have you on because i don't get to talk much about women topics on the <laughs> show because it's usually like crime romance or children's so it's fantastic and i was super excited about that so tell us like where did the inspiration for this come from was it a conversation or or where did that spark like, yeah, there's a few different bits actually. That I think the very initial idea was really just like idle daydreaming. I'm sure you had this as a writer as well um, about something in your own life, and then you go, "Oh, that would be the basis for a story." So it was thinking, imagine if um, you know I've been born in a different era, and, and how would that have affected the romantic relationships that I've had? So sort of thinking like my first ever boyfriend, if we met in 1947. We probably would have got married. We were deeply in love. Yeah, you know, we might have had kids, all that sort of stuff. That relationship really didn't last, and that's probably for the best. <laughs> but you know, I know that feeling, girl. I know that <laughs> feeling. <laughs> I think most people know that feeling, don't they? So I thought that would be something that would would intrigue people. That you know, how much does the time you're living in affect how your relationship kind of had to go and what shape it had to be in? So you know, it's kind of marriage and the pressure to have babies in the first part, and then in the second part, there's a bit of opening up and it being like, oh, it's the '60s. Maybe we can do things differently, and that brings its own liberations and its own stresses. Um, so yeah, I think it came from that kind of idea of um, my own like idle, idle wondering about my own love life. Um, but then I think it also the kind of class element probably came from looking at my own family. So yeah. like my grandmother um, was from Liverpool and she went to London during the war, which is to work, which is probably something she wouldn't have done um, from her sort of background um, if it hadn't been for that kind of great, huge uh, sort of global event. Um, and then like when she was, she was working in the post office uh, and then she had to give it up to have kids. And her husband really didn't want her to go back to work after having children when they were at school or whatever. And I remember hearing about this and just being like, that is, that is wild. <laughs> like, I know they loved each other very much. They had a very good relationship in lots of ways. She wasn't a kind of downtrodden. She was too ferocious to be downtrodden, I would say. Um, but just the thought that that would be the expectation. And it kind of got me thinking about um, how hard it must have been as a woman to really love and respect and trust and have a great relationship with men when they were kind of bound by societal expectations that like yeah. no you will stay at home and I will look after you um yeah and just that those sort of yeah gendered expectations uh, must have been really a lot to deal with in romantic relationships I thought that and, was really and it's such an important topic today because what people don't realize is the rural areas like you know northern Scotland the outer islands and Shetland there is still that kind of class issue you know because I I grew up with a, a grandmother who expected all of us to marry up she was very much <laughs> yeah. like my great-grandmother was like you are going to marry up um which by the way did the opposite for me <laughs> I totally went against everything she taught me but it is there was that expectation of being passed down where mm. You know, if you were from a certain part of the island, you were not a certain class. Mm. And there was that pressure in school where you weren't expect like you almost knew the kids that you could date mm. that would be acceptable, and then the kids you did not date because they yeah. were not acceptable. 
Um, and, I mean, I'm 33 years old now, and I'm surprised that that still exists when I was at high school. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, when I went back and I was teaching, I noticed it was still there. Yeah. And I thought, you know, that's scary. That's, that's terrifying that this still exists. Mm. And I think books like yours, if you, we can give them to sort of, sort of 17 and up, it might help them to feel like they can navigate it a bit better as well from a class perspective because there is those, the power struggle still there. And the divide mm-hmm. now, especially since the country is struggling and we're all struggling, that class divide's getting much bigger. Mm. And that sort yeah, of it hasn't gone away, has it? Depressingly. Yeah, <laughs> and it's gotten it's gotten to the point where it's invisible. We don't really talk about it, but it's in schools. Kids know about it. Kids feel it. Mm. So, how do we teach them to forget class and just marry for love and marry for good relationships and marry for the right reasons? Mm. And also be aware that it, you know, money and differences can can cause can cause tensions and yeah. I think the thing to do really and that's another thing that's very much in the book is that it's a kind of across each part but also across all three parts a look at how really trying to develop honest and open communication is <laughs> I think the secret to you know successful relationships and that in, in perhaps past eras that we had a bit more oppression or a bit more you know what you were and weren't allowed to talk about and as we get better at talking about things like class like gender like our mental health like you know our sexual desires then hopefully we become we all become better at having relationships but yeah, yeah. I, I definitely think like um my two characters have massive class differences and and it doesn't seem like it's a problem in some ways and in other ways you're like of course it's a problem of course it's a problem if one of you is incredibly rich and the other isn't at all of course these prejudices are like unnecessary but they're really hard to shake it's super ingrained as you say um in a lot of british society still so yeah and i've noticed it's not just britain i went i went to the states in, in 2016 and one thing I noticed was class separation mm. that was actually, it was invisible. It wasn't like somebody was sitting saying, you sit over there, you sit over sure, there. Yeah. It wasn't like that, but you could tell invisibly people gravitated to certain parts of restaurants because people in mm. those areas and even in the city where they lived yeah. determined what class they were. Yeah. And you could tell, like, some women wouldn't talk to other men if they were in a certain part of the box. And mm-hmm. to me, I thought, I thought, wow, you know, America's supposed to be this big, free country where these things shouldn't exist, and I'm seeing it. And it yeah. wasn't just class. It was, you know, certain uh, ethnicities would go to their own ethnicity groups in restaurants mm-hmm. and bars. Either out of feeling safe or because that is what they knew, but it was wide opening for us as as tourists in a way mm. that you know it was so obvious. We don't mm. have the same ethnicity, I would say, segregation. We mingle more here, mm. but I was really aware of it, and I was really aware of the the idea of class in the states. Just during, mm. I mean, I was there a week. <laughs> and and I was shocked that yeah, just 
how different it was. Yeah. So hopefully your book will do international good and good here at home. I, I definitely see it being the top read of 2023, or at least it will be my top read of 2023. Thank you. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what you're reading. Has there been something that you just have not been able to stop thinking about since you've, you know, you've been reading books and, and sort of enjoying what's mm. out there right now yeah one book i read recently that's definitely i mean it's, it's not stuck with me that long so i only finished it maybe a couple of weeks ago but um has been rattling around in my mind certainly it's called milk fed by melissa broder i don't know if you've read okay. it okay um it is kind of kind of a romance <laughs> but um it's also really kind of interesting and messy exploration of i guess uh, one woman's kind of relationship with food and eating and their body weight so the main character just has this really like intensely controlled calorie counting diet and works i think in the agency in la and it's all very like you know they're, they're kind of not letting anything out and then they meet a woman um at a frozen yogurt stall who sort of just overfills their cup both literally and metaphorically <laughs> and they kind of have this sexual attraction um, and yeah, it's about food and it's about sex and it's about loving and being attracted to different kinds of bodies and different kinds of imperfect, not imperfection, it's, um, I don't know how to describe it. Letting go of rigid ideals and embracing just like who the, you are, the sticky glory of life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that sounds not, fantastic. Yeah. It's really, it's really interesting. There are definitely some bits that you're like, like some of the descriptions of eating and food are like so over the top you almost feel a bit nauseous um reading it it's quite an intense book but um it's yeah. also very very funny and it's just I, I would say that is a kind of like lust and gaze and like romance that you just do not see on the page very often of like yeah. a skinny uptight uh woman falling in love with a really relaxed messy very overweight food loving woman who's just happy in her body <laughs> which is great because then again you know we're, we're sort of targeting and trying to undo the stereotypes and yeah. pressures of social media and the world that we live in um i totally get that as a skinny skinny woman who cannot get fat no matter how much she tries i have that fat envy kind of thing where i'm like i want to be big um <laughs> You know, it is that thing where people look at me and think, oh, she's got a calorie count and she's got to mm. die and work out in the gym five days a week. I don't do any of that. No, I just have a bad body that break. doesn't want to put weight on. <laughs> so, you know, it's both ways. Like, there's a lot of stereotypes for, for you know, women who are skinny. Um, you know, we I got... I was always, as a teenager, told I was anorexic by mm -hmm. everybody because I was the, you know, the really model thin, short, mm. uh, slightly overly fiery Nordic woman who didn't fit in because all my classmates were big, vivacious women. Mm. So I got bullied for being skinny, which everyone thinks is hilarious. But yeah. these these stereotypes exist. And I've noticed, particularly in Scotland, if you are so small, it you do get a harder time because there is that they love their curvy women in Scotland. <laughs> they really do. Mm. And, it, you know, so it, it's 
I like to think that we're opening this conversation so that both sides are not getting so, yeah. feeling so, you know, suppressed and and made to feel like we have to live in in boxes. And yeah. I mean, that is really when we cut it down to the fine finer points. Women have to live in a set mold. Yeah, and well, if we're it, different from that, if you're skinny, you're too skinny. If you're if you're fat or curvy or whatever, that you're too big. If you have the perfect figure, then you're going to be dismissed as just a pretty girl, just a bimbo. You know, we can, yeah. we literally, we literally cannot win, and you know, it's yeah. um, it's very useful for capitalism for us all to feel shit about ourselves, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. <laughs> yeah, you are. Don't worry. This is uh, do whatever you want kind of podcast. You can talk wherever you want. That's the great thing about being on the Book of Life podcast. It's what we think and getting to share our stories you know um and i think that's that's what makes this place different because we can have these discussions there's nobody that's going to come and rattle my fingers <laughs> for expressing what we feel and what we think so if you had time to just sit relax and read what author and what series would you read now author and series have to be two different writers don't you um well i'm in the middle, not the middle, maybe a third of the way through um, the most I think the most recent Philip Pullman one, Secret Commonwealth, uh, which I love that series from Northern Lights, the Book of Dust uh, sort of series. I read them obsessively when I was a teenager, um, and yeah, I'm just just now enjoying catching up with the with this great big doorstopper of a book. So really, I would like to put all of my work on hold and just sit on the sofa and. Um, and read that. Um, the other one I would say for a series, which I confess is um, like a real blind spot in my <laughs> reading, is that I haven't actually read the Wolfhall books, and oh, okay. I really want to, um, but I have always been just a little bit like, oh my gosh, so big and so many. Um, so if time was- <laughs> I know that feel too. <laughs> I would just stack them up and I just dig into them and, um, and not be intimidated anymore. <laughs> It's so good to be talking to you because for me growing up, I was addicted to Catherine Cookson, who was probably the first feministic, real feministic voice mm. of a probably our sort of eras. Um, and then I kind of, from her, I, I sort of went into Leslie Pierce, who again raises issues, but in such a way as she's not slapping you in the face with it, you know? Mm. Um, so for me, like, I love sharing those writers mm. with people that come on because I think Catherine Cookson's being forgotten as mm. a trailblazer, as a writer for Britain who did actually start changing things in women's perspective a lot sooner than they, these topics were being discussed. Mm. Yeah. Have um, you tried her? Have you have ventured into her work? I think possibly as a teenager although I might be and like maybe getting her mixed up with Mo Finchie are they in a similar space um well they're more no, they're I'm historical wrong. and they're they, uh -huh. they're written in that kind of working class voice mm -hmm. okay no but I don't think they have them she she really goes after things like women's mental health postnatal mm -hmm. depression racism segregation class systems she as a woman who couldn't have children herself because of a disease we can now cure, she suffered from that depression 
and she she kind of made her books her children mm-hmm. and she was dyslexic and she was a housemaid who clawed her way to being a day she had no education nothing and I think I admire her for being strong enough and having courage to share these conversations mm-hmm. at such an early point because you got to remember this is like the 90s 95 um when it was a time where we didn't talk about mm. you know mixed relationships or um you know going into areas of racism uh colorblind was one of her her first real kind of hard-hitting books where she talks about a woman who falls in love with a man of a different ethnicity and she doesn't care she doesn't see his skin she doesn't see where he's come from she just loves this man and she just wants to be in love with this man and be accepted for loving him so yeah I, I if you ever get a chance I would I would dive into her because she she also goes into things like why women are usually victims of domestic abuse she goes into that she goes into disabled exploitation which is a topic Mm. today that's still taboo to talk about but she went after it Mm. you know um i think her mental health series that she did with hamilton was actually based on her own depression and based on her own issues and it blew me away Mm. here's this disabled woman with mental health issues and she's she's just saying hey this is wrong and it's okay to say this is wrong Mm. and do something about it um, so yeah, check her out. I think yeah. I think you would. For such a, not all of her books are huge, which is a good thing. <laughs> um, and I also think, like one of them was Justice is, Justice is a Woman, was another great one because that was her exploring sort of feminism and mm-hmm. how women were kind of starting to link together, to change. Mm-hmm. how people were looking at them and how people were treating them and I think, yeah, she's incredible um, Leslie Pierce, she did a number of books um, one of her most I think hard hitting for me was The Gypsy where she goes out to the States and she discovers that you know she's run away from England she's run away from you know what she thinks is destitution and then she has to fight for her life and for the one she loves constantly um, while she journeys across America. And that, honestly, I I had surgery, right? I had surgery when I took the book into hospital. I was like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll put it down. It'll be no issue. <laughs> I had to read it. They literally were pulling it off me as they're trying to put me to sleep. And I'm like, no, just one more page. And they're like, no, <laughs> you know. Um, so she's such a gripping writer. And I think a lot of the issues she brings up in the way she does is you don't think about it till after you finish reading and then you're like oh I didn't see that and mm-hmm. now I do wow you know nice that's the great thing on this show is we do share um, recommendations with books and stuff like that yeah I don't know I don't know this again, to be honest I mean I've heard the name but I've not read anything so I can't say. Yeah. well I, I definitely check her out I think um you, I think you just love it. I think it would really talk to you from what you've written and the way that you, you know, what you're already reading. I think the two of them would, would really inspire other stuff um, within you, maybe. Maybe not. 
<laughs> is there an author past or present who's influenced, inspired, and made you excited about books? And you get three different authors. Um, yeah, there are loads, so this is a bit, this is a bit tricky to think about. Um, so first off, I'm going to say by somebody I've written about loads, um, and yeah, I think my love of is well, well documented, which is Virginia Woolf. Um, so I read Mrs. Dalloway when I was 18 and about to go to uni to study English. Um, and it was one of those things where you open a book and you're just like, my mind's yeah, blown. Yeah, mind's blown <laughs> completely. Yeah, I know. Uh, She's like amazing. What, what you can do with the book, how fiction can move and move in and out of people's minds and transport you. And also that thing of just like really ordinary people in their lives being worthy of that kind of artistry and and beauty I suppose um, yeah so I love her and then I ended up doing a master's dissertation about adaptations of Virginia Woolf in like film and theatre so then I got to go really deep and be incredibly nerdy <laughs> watch lots of things read lots of things write lots of things um, and I think that kind of enthusiasm I mean you, I guess you go one way or the other you become completely sick of it or you love it forever and unfortunately it's the, it's the love it forever um, she is right, incredible so, yeah yeah um, and I think, you know, I wouldn't say my writing is like hers, really, but I think, you know, one thing I have been asked about in interviews is the kind of moving between different perspectives, like maybe within a scene or even, you know, within a page, whatever. And I feel like that probably is a subconscious influence from her because I just love that way that she, like, dives in and out of people's perspectives so much. So I think that, yeah, I think she's definitely, she has been an influence, even if you probably wouldn't get it to, like, read the book. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, it's good to have that ability to move between characters because you're giving a much more rounder world and a much more rounder understanding of what the characters are thinking, why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and that's super important for the reader because it, it allows them to feel the connection you've had with the reader, you know, with the characters in the writing process. Yeah, I think it's also um, in What Time Is Love that, you know, it's a romance, but you do have it from both sides. So actually... And often there's a lot of miscommunication or misunderstanding, and so it's really nice to be able to swivel from like one to the other. Actually, quite, I hope, deftly. Um, so you sort of see what one person is thinking but can't say, and then how the other person misinterprets that or whatever. And you're kind of jumping between them. It would be a very, very different book, I think, if it was just from one point of view or from one point of view and then the other and then back. You know, being able to be fluid with it, I think. Um, is kind of how it works maybe yeah so that's been quite key i think for me um yeah i, th I think that's yeah. fantastic yeah <laughs> so and who's your other two because um, i know everybody will be dying to know um i really love ali smith as a contemporary writer um yeah yeah i just think she's got a huge and fascinating brain like i love how playful and like like genuinely formally inventive her stuff is uh, you never know what you're going to get um it's always surprising i think it's always funny um and i just like i love all the wordplay that she does is really getting into stuff um and the kind of cultural and art criticism and stuff that she throws into her her, her stories and novels it's not always expected but it's like I always come out feeling like my brain's been a bit expanded and she does it with such a deft touch it's never kind of like here is a boring philosophical treatise you know it's just really in there um yeah I think she definitely challenges me to think about what books can look like and again 
I don't think you'd necessarily read my book and be like, oh, well, she's obviously an Ali Smith fan. But <laughs> um, she's somebody that, yeah, I think she, she really, like, feeds me. Um, I think she yeah. influences a lot of people kind of in Britain yeah, for some reason. Right. Like, she... I didn't read her till I went to uni, and then I was like, who the hell is this? Like, <laughs> she stayed in Thurso area? Oh my gosh, my dad did. Yeah. And it was just like that opening moment of it's okay to explore with writing and not feel like you're trapped in set rules with set expectations. Yeah. I think I think she does really open our minds. Mm. So your final one, who's your final one? Um, I'm going to go... I had, I- had two this is a bit cheating but i wanted to have two ones that have like long involving books and series um so and i was a bit like ella ferrante or elizabeth jane howard i read ella ferrante you know quite a few years ago now when those books were coming out all my friends were reading them my mum was reading them we couldn't wait to get our hands on them you know you were like really involved in those worlds those characters those women um and that kind of long form thing of watching a life changing as the world changes around it i guess has a slight influence um, probably on what time is love and then I just recently finished reading the Kazalek Chronicles which is like again massive books five of them or whatever it is um, and I was bereft when I finished them because I was like again I feel like I know these people these generations of characters and like I love them so much and I think both those books do both those series do a great job of taking again like quite ordinary lives um, and like maybe dramatising you know their relationships um and of course think that that is incredibly important and totally the subject of like just absorbing gorgeous moving literature <laughs> yeah and that's the good thing you you need that kind of inspiration and literacy to develop as a writer i always say it's sometimes better to read many genres because it opens your perspective in your mm-hmm. mind and it helps you learn a little bit more about how to have that rounded world and so that they're so absorbing like the books you're talking about where you can't put them down you have to read and then when it does finish you just want to cry because you're yeah. like no I don't want this to end you know I, I've been there I've been there um and yeah it's it's a fantastic feeling so when you're in a bookstore where are you most drawn like where do you end up I think I generally like, uh, yeah, just sort of amble around looking at stuff. I mean, I probably read mostly, I guess, literary fiction, and I'm, I probably am more drawn to books by women. Um, not really, yeah. kind of very conscious way, or um, uh, like oh, I don't want to read men, but um, I guess I feel like a lot of new stuff that's coming out is there are a lot more fiction books of the kind that I'm attracted to by women being released so probably the ones that you're like oh I must read so and so is is more often women at the moment um but and in general I guess uh yeah I perhaps just have a slight bias there but you know that's not to say I would ever be like oh I'm not reading something by a man obviously but yeah (laughs) (laughs) no not at all I mean for me when I wrote um Marie's World it was never designed to be a romance or a sports mm. romance. Um, but my publisher at the time had no idea what to brand it as. It should have been fiction. It really honestly should have been just literacy fiction. Yeah. And, you know, my whole idea of it was twins turning against each other. So one publishes the sister's diaries, and then it's the fallout of that. 
Mm-hmm. So it's examining, well, how far can you stretch a twin bond before it breaks? And you have got dancing in there, and you've got wrestling in there, which is a male-dominated world. And these girls kind of come in, and they're like laughing in the face of these men as if to say I'm you know they're not going to be broken by their idea that men have to run wrestling and that men are the only ones that understand it so I was challenging the male perspective Mm. on wrestling and saying hey women can write just as well as you probably better but also at the same time I was I was challenging the conception of the ideas Mm. I think Huge, you, you know, what you've done is exceptional because you're changing that focus and then you're sort of bringing up topics that people don't want to talk about and then at the same time I feel like I love your work more because it, it's almost like you're you're doing exactly what I want to do but I don't have the same sort of impact as you have but it's like we're, we're making change even though it's little bits of change at a time. That doesn't sound like a romance what you just described. <laughs> It's not, you know, okay, there's love triangles in it, but if you're in a male-dominated world where the guys yeah. are in their little boxer shorts wrestling and they're all oiled up and they look good, that's going to happen. I mean, <laughs> common sense, people. You know, but I got thrown in uh, to sports romance before sports romance was even a thing. Mm-hmm. And mine's was one of the first biggest wrestling romances ever was released and to me it's not a wrestling romance right it's, okay <laughs> you know it's, it's it's a story about sisterhood and and families and how one father's secret can destroy an entire family mm. um so yeah i i still have that fight where i'm like it's in the wrong genre <laughs> yeah, I think that's very but, common isn't it for yeah for writers <laughs> it is it, it, have you ever experienced that where you're kind of just sitting with an editor and you're thinking no, you're not getting this. It's the wrong genre. No. <laughs> it's not entirely unfamiliar. I think I think there's also like I guess with my with what time is love probably like maybe it could have been mar- like I think a lot of a lot of stuff about genre is actually about like marketing. It's not really Yeah, it is necessarily about your words in some ways. Like if they sold your book as a different kind of book it could probably be sold as a non-romance without changing anything except the cover or whatever and you know I guess um, maybe you know they gave uh, what time is love like quite commercial treatment and to have a really wide appeal which is fantastic because I hope it does and and you know it's great to get a book to a really wide audience um, but that wasn't necessarily how I had expected it to be published I guess so um, yeah I think it's interesting um, and slightly strange part of being an author I guess when you write you don't really think about what it's going to look like or how no. somebody's going to write some copy for it or how you know uh, someone's going to decide it's a defining feature of a of a genre you maybe didn't even know existed you know you can't exactly I mean you know I think <laughs> romance at the time especially you'll probably find this as well is we write what we love as writers mm-hmm. we don't sit and look at the markets yeah. I have learned how to do it but we don't go purposely and say, okay, the market needs this, so I'm yeah. going to go write this. Like, we write what comes from inside us or what inspires us or what's bothering us. Mm. Because writing is therapy for us. <laughs> if we were all honest, we're doing therapy because that's that's just how it, it kind of plays out for us. 
But yeah, like, I I love the fact that when I looked at yours, I was like, yeah, they got the market right for her and her work. And then I was slightly frustrated. <laughs> and I do sometimes imagine myself throwing my book at the editor. <laughs> delighted. Yeah. Hey, we're doing this as wrestling robots. Um, <laughs> but yeah, check out Marie's World and then... Mm. You know, she should let me know sometime if you if you agree with the editor or not. It's kind yeah, of like a great. an open discussion <laughs> we've got going here because wrestling was and it was a world I actually started writing in. I learned mm-hmm. how to write there, and I realized very quickly it's a very anti-feministic world. Mm-hmm. There is only yeah. one female that's ever been able to kind of really break into that business as a writer, and now she's gone. Right. And all that kind of male pressure and, you know, is, is in the room now. You yeah. know, so few females are in. It's, it's, it's so scary. So for me, when I did Marie's World, that was what really bothered me about it, is that I got literally told by somebody, you will not be a wrestling writer because you're a woman. Mm-hmm. And it just really pushed the book into, like, i got to write this. Because it's wrong. I want to challenge the the system. And I laugh because some wrestling companies purposely ignore my stuff. Mm. Even though the boys have read it and they discuss it. Because they don't want to let women in. And I think it's that kind of male feeling. If if one or two of us get in and we do really well, (laughs) what's going to happen? Are they going to lose their spot? Are they going to lose their power and their position? Um, But yeah, I'd love to hear what you think. Because, you know, you you have that kind of open perspective. You might might feel my frustration. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I mean, I know very little about wrestling, but maybe I would find out. <laughs> you will. I think you will. I, I mean, it's not like the dominant sort of story of it. It sure. really is about the women. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. it's, you know, I mean, if you had a twin sister who took all your diaries and just suddenly published them, <laughs> it's the horror of that. Yeah. You know, it's that's like almost the ultimate betrayal, I think. You know, your own twin just stealing your your personal thoughts and your personal things just because you're famous mm. for something that you worked hard at and you broke your body for. I just thought it was an incredible story. Um, I will one day get it into fiction. <laughs> <laughs> so moving into your writing, how did you go about creating the darker characters and the sort of the well the darker moments? I should say, like, was there um, did you have to set scene in your in your office, or how did you go about getting into that mindset of that danger and that kind of moment of frustration? I don't know that I did anything differently, really, for darker moments. I mean, I guess you sort of feel them looming when you're writing in the same way that you can feel you're approaching, you know, a key lovely scene, a key exciting yeah. romantic scene, or whatever. You can also feel that, like. Yeah, the darkness is coming. I tend, I tend to do a kind of rough plan, and then I'm writing quite loosely within within that. Um, I, I think probably those scenes, um, you know, big fights or um, yeah, like really difficult moments in a relationship or betrayals, things like that. I think probably they are. I like, think I maybe write them more in one burst, so I need to be like in it, and you're like. Oh, getting like always feeling the adrenaline of the characters and getting through that scene 
like I probably I'm more likely to write that whole chapter in like one go, two goes, rather than four or five goes, maybe. Um, yeah. But I think that's maybe about the only real difference for me. Yeah. Yeah, for me, like if I'm if I'm having that struggle, because I we all have that time where we just lose where we're at because we life's approached and we've had to go somewhere or do something so for me i i have like candles that i might use for different scents to kind of get that emotional connection back Mm. do you do you find that helpful tapping into like your senses i've never done that actually that's a really nice yeah and i don't write with music um i if I'm writing in a public place, you know, like maybe if I'm like, oh, I'm going to really need to work on this chapter and I've got a long train journey and, yeah, I might stick some music on to like drown out the screaming and the person on their phone or whatever. We, all, not, we, we all have to do that, yeah. But I'm not really using it to um, uh, to key me into an emotion or anything, particularly. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's mostly just me and the, and the screen. <laughs> it's a very boring answer, but it's true. <laughs> No, it's good because everyone has their own process and I think it's good to share that because I think a lot of the new writers coming in, you know, they think that they need to kind of really turn their offices into every book almost Mm -hmm. so that they've got like visual and sensual and, you know, there's almost that pressure of you've got to live it to write it. Um, And I like to share people's sort of own experiences because I like to say, hey, look, you don't have to live it. To, to be able to write it yeah definitely and I would say that like everyone has different ways of doing things I know some people like to have a really visual you know things to plot it out or like a mood board or something but I also think sometimes these things can be just getting in the way of getting on with it or getting started and the best thing to do is just like write it <laughs> yeah exactly then you can go and be like okay I'm going to do an exercise where I think like what candle would they burn and I'm going to burn that or, or you know I'm going to think what um, clothes are they wearing and find that outfit or whatever I don't know like I think it's a, like tactile stuff is a great way in but um, I, I just don't think there's any hard and fast rules or things you have to do before you can do a scene <laughs> I think it's a good form of procrastination which us as writers <laughs> are so good at yeah there is that <laughs> you know I think avoiding that is like a very unique discipline I have days myself where you know I'll think on something I think it was yesterday I was writing something and I was like oh wait what would happen if this happened so then I'm on google and the next thing I know I've lost like three hours (laughs) just trying to track down an answer to a question that related to the story but at the same time I'm like did I really need to spend three hours on that yeah um so yeah very strongly i tend to like try like i'll try and only google if i know i can get an answer within 10 minutes <laughs> yeah something that i'm like this could mushroom into doing an entire history of x then i'm i'll like mark it and leave it and come back to it because otherwise yeah. you just get it interrupts your flow doesn't it yeah and i i mean i'm i'm really bad for that because with certain things like particularly when i was writing marie's world there was I had a co-author who I could annoy the crap out of and be like, hey, can I do this or that? Mm-hmm. And I think he spent more time saying no <laughs> sure. than, he, than we did writing because it was a case of I don't physically wrestle, so mm-hmm. I needed him and his brain. Um, yeah. And he just, I, I remember him being on a flight, I think it was like 5 o'clock in the morning, and him emailing me going, 
where did you get this? This doesn't make any physical sense. No. And, you know, just having so many different pieces scrolled out across town. And I was like, oh, I need to rewrite this entire thing. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think procrastination is something we have to be much aware of. Mm. Why Why do you think you chose the genre that you did? What What do you think drew you and made you say, this is the genre I want to to sort of conquer? I guess, um, really relating to what we were just talking about before genre, I, don't, I wasn't massively aware of it. I just thought I was writing um, the story that I wanted to tell and just trying to make it compelling and reading uh, readable and interesting and honest um and pacey and you know all those things that like i like in books and then i guess yeah i think um i feel like it's the publishers really that are like oh it's commercial fiction or it's literary fiction or it's women's fiction or it's romantic fiction um and you know that label maybe wasn't uh, super, maybe it wasn't that important to me. I don't know. It certainly was important to me when I was writing it. I just thought no. I was writing. Um, and I think it's important that new <laughs> writers don't focus on genre. Yeah, I mean, I, I, guess keep, I keep saying that too. Genres, but like in this, I don't really think feel like it's a strong genre fiction. To be honest, like I guess it's yeah sort of placed in commercial fiction, and I think some places are listing it as romance. It obviously has a romance in it. But I don't really think of it as genre fiction, romance fiction particularly. I think of it just yeah. as... I, I mean, I just say it was fiction, you know? <laughs> I think it's fiction too. Yeah. But that, I mean, I've, I'm wrong all the time about this sort of <laughs> stuff. But um, yeah, and I keep saying to writers, like, don't pick a genre mm. and focus on it. Focus on what stories you want to tell and yeah. then worry about genre later. Yeah. You know, when you when you get to the, the editing and you know where you want it to go, then worry about it. But yeah, and it you might know, be focus that, on the story. Know, it's an editor tells you like I can't sell this as it is, if you shift it slightly more into this genre, it would be better and then you can decide whether those are changes you want to make to sell your book or whether you're like, Well no, it is a genre defying masterpiece. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um I'm still under the fight of mine is going to be fiction. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually. So when you're writing, are you a movie writer or are you that jigsaw puzzle builder when you're when you're sort of in the flow? I think jigsaw puzzle feels more right. Like I, I generally yeah, have these ideas of like these are some things I want to happen, these are some like conflict that is gonna you know make this interesting this is some this is a place we've got to get to or these are the things i've given my characters so that they come together and can talk about this or this will be a problem or this will be interesting and then it's kind of working backwards from some of that to then make them into like fleshed out real human beings and you know find a flow of story but i have to say when i'm actually doing the the writing like line by line it's not like I can see a movie and I'm, you know, writing it down, but it is sometimes like I am surprised that the next scene is just, it's almost like it's just out of sight. And then as you start writing, yeah. it just kind of comes out. Um, yeah, but I think that fruit, that flowiness and freedom comes from having a bit of a, usually a bit of a structure in place, um, which is not to say that sometimes I don't go massively off 
piece or you know sometimes things and characters surprise you and you're like okay right we're going over here now <laughs> yeah i've i've had that like i yeah. had wrote in harold as this big villainous character and now i can't get rid of him <laughs> <laughs> yeah because he's got a mind of its own and yeah. he's, he's <laughs> intruding on everything else and i haven't finished his novel yet it's, mm -hmm. it's in a pile where mm -hmm. i'm like i will do it when i'm not trying to write other stuff and then at the same time i'm like he's not going away <laughs> yeah. do you ever have that where you've got another character that just suddenly decides i'm going to sit in and <laughs> you know comment on everything and annoy the crap out of you um i think i don't really have that with a specific character but i would say that while i'm writing books i usually like i've had other ones lurking in the background waiting wanting to be written and sometimes daydreaming about them is more fun than doing the work of working out like why a scene wasn't working in the one you're actually blooming writing and so I definitely have that again it's a bit like it's daydreaming it's procrastination I guess and it's not that I really do anything with that but my brain would just rather be hanging out with them and being like oh well what is their uh their dress sense than thinking well how do you solve this structural bit that is a real mess <laughs> yeah exactly or for for me it's a kind of a case of I get scatterbrained a little bit mm -hmm. when I'm writing because I'll be f so my fingers will be doing the novel but the other part of my brain's like I want to plot this now you yeah, know yeah. <laughs> like it just it gets bored and I'm like yeah <laughs> I'm trying to focus on what I'm doing I I think um being a multitasker and a writer sometimes is very frustrating <laughs> Have you had a character that stayed with you the longest or the most? Like one that you just haven't quite shaken that you've written yet? Mm, I think, um, I guess probably Violet's character from What Time Is Love is, um, yeah, yeah they, I think I love both of the main characters, but she, I think I felt very like tender towards and very fierce about and, um, yeah, I had written a book before this, which didn't get published, probably never will. And in that book, the main character, like, I really liked, but also she was a bit, like, um, she was a bit passive, and mm -hmm. maybe, like, bad things happened to her, and she was a bit uncertain about what she wanted in the world, and all this sort of stuff. And at the end of it, I, was, I got pretty sick of writing that character, working on that, and editing that book. And I was like, right, the next book I write, the female character is going to be one I really like and I'm going to make her obviously flawed but like really interesting and I'm never going to get yeah. sick of her and like that worked <laughs> I it is good to have that yeah like yeah, I didn't I had the same issue I, I wrote a book before Bree's World and I hated it I hated the character <laughs> and then when I came to write her I'm like she's going to be fierce she's going to be yeah. stark and then my editor's like you do realise she's not that likeable I was like damn I like her though. <laughs> exactly. If you like her, or it, even if it's not, I don't know. This like think of likability is the tedious. I think as long as you're like interested by her, as long as you yeah. want to read about her, as long as you like. Everybody um, goes back to her and goes like, "Why is she like this?" You know. Yeah. Right. Um, I think that's fine. That's also good. <laughs> yeah, like she has an impact on you in the regard where you cannot shake the control mm -hmm. she has, and I think characters like that are really pivotal. Because, you know, it's impossible to know exactly how someone's going to react in the situation she ends up in. Mm -hmm. And I think 
that's what I was trying to capture that uncertainty mm-hmm. the chaos that we actually have in our lives mm-hmm. rather than it being a smooth story she has chaotic feelings she's very flip-floppy she doesn't really know what she's gonna do and then she makes these huge impulsive decisions and there's a lot of women out there that is like that mm-hmm. and I think I represented a group of people that isn't really discussed mm-hmm. or considered that might be heroines in a story so yeah. that was my goal and I, I think I achieved it however uh, I think you know in in the current market I think it's a lot harder for readers because they're used to having really likable mm, heroines yeah. And, yeah yeah is there a character you wish you could write more about do you have one that's just there and you're like I haven't quite finished with you yet yeah, I think I probably have finished with them, but I'm sad to have both. So in What Time Is Love, both, um, as I said earlier, you really move between the perspectives of Violet and Albert. But in yeah. the first draft that um, I sent out to publishers, so not my first draft, it was a, you know, extensively worked on, but the, the draft yeah. that sold, if you like, um, also had the readers going into the perspective of Rose, who um, is Albert's sister, and then Tamsin, who was one of their friends in the different parts. And my editor, I think really rightly said, like, this takes focus away from the central two characters and, you know, it's just, we don't really need it. Um, which I was very resistant to at first. And then when I took it out, I was like, ah, yeah, she's right, it's fine. Um, but I slightly mourned the loss of, like, being in those characters' heads and, like, understanding yeah. them, seeing their backstories a bit more and seeing what was pissing them off and what they loved and... Um, yeah, so I think I I don't know that either of them are people that I would write books, but maybe. Um, I hope you do, because <laughs> I, I think they, they have stuck with you. They've left an impression, mm. and maybe their story is something that when you actually start exploring, you'll find worthwhile. Yeah, could be. It's nice to know that, I hadn't really thought about it, it's nice to think that, like, oh yeah, the door doesn't have to shut on them, it's just up to you. <laughs> So moving into your life, now this is where everyone gets nervous, but it's honestly this like the questions that I think looks at balancing and how we balance our lives, which yeah, is super important <laughs> because so many writers suffer from burnout within the first 10 years. Mm. And I'm hoping that by saying, look, this is how you balance things, we won't have so many writers like throwing tent tantrums and saying, I can't do this anymore, <laughs> which we all do at some point. Um, So what's the first thing you do when you want to de-stress from writing and editing and and life, really? I actually don't find the writing very often too stressful. I mean, occasionally you hit a real wall with something and you're like, oh, it's not really working. But most of the time, I actually quite enjoy that. Editing, I would say, definitely feels much more like hard graft and it like makes my brain ache by the end of doing like several hours. I'm with you, girl. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and there were a few things. Uh, no, I'm sure these are all things people have said before to you, and it's not not going to be revelatory. But doing yoga really helps. Uh, going for a walk always really helps. Um, and you think like being outside in general, very good. Like in the summer or spring, or whatever, I'll often go like do a bit of pottering around the garden, like pulling up some dead stuff, like digging some things. That's like that's good I have quite a tiny garden so it doesn't need that much but somehow like yeah just going and fiddling with things or picking some flowers is like really helpful for the brain for the indoor brain that's been looking at a screen too long um, yeah 
And we yeah. all need that moment to just clear the decks. And especially for people in Britain, yeah. getting outside is such a rare thing sometimes. It's hard at the moment. It's so, like, it just gets dark so early. I often feel like yeah. by the time I've done the stuff I really have to do, it's, it feels like it's almost too late to go outside. But um, I make myself yeah. do it. <laughs> Um, and yeah. then I would also really recommend going to the pub. <laughs> I would love to go to the pub, but I'm not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> um, why are you yeah. not allowed to go to the pub? Uh, I had a tendency to get, when I was younger, I would get drunk and I would try and steal uh, boats. So okay, that's a good reason not to go to the pub. <laughs> yeah, so my, my husband now is like, no pubs no. ever again. No because uh, he would have to watch me um, very closely. Because on our first date, I actually tried to steal a boat. So <laughs> he was like, "No, take it out it's for okay. a spin or like to." Yeah, I was just like, "Oh, I'll just like drive you back to Glasgow on this boat," and he's like, okay. like no, "No, no, no." I mean, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, um, it was my idea of being a romantic gesture, but yeah, not not in his opinion. <laughs> so what hobbies do you enjoy? And are there ones you wish you had more time to explore? Mm. I mean, again, um, walking, I think, like I, I live in Sheffield, and so I'm very near the Peak District. It's really quick for our house to get out properly. But also, like, time or basically if it was more light, I would do more. But I find whenever I do get properly on top of a hill, in nature, feel better about everything, it's really good when you're struggling, like, also when I need to plan things when I'm writing as well. I find it really incredibly useful. So it's useful to plan. It's also useful to get away from it. It's brilliant for if I have a sticky patch. I just love it. Um, yeah, and then I I watch quite a lot of theatre. Um, like, I've reviewed theatre for a lot of my career, and I still uh, yeah, love it. Um, so Theatre is such a release. It really yeah, is. Yeah, it's great. It's a really... It, you know, I mean, I love all kinds of fiction. Obviously, I read a lot. I watch a lot of television films, all of that sort of stuff. But there's something for me that's really special about theatre, which I think is the liveness and the communalness. And also, you cannot look at your phone. <laughs> you yeah. really do have to just be in it. Yeah. Um, and obviously, sometimes I am taking notes, which is, like, maybe not the most being in it. But, um, you know, uh, at least... But I... that's the fun of it. Like, I've been on stage, I've done the acting stuff and then I've been in the audience and it's a rush it yeah. is a, an absolute rush that you can't explain to people and when you know that these people have worked so so hard to get that show going and on the stage the respect that you have for them is just massive once you've done it yourself like it's yeah, 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 yeah. you really appreciate it I think folk that maybe have never been on stage don't quite appreciate it as much as the ones that have done it um, but yeah like I I took my husband to the ballet, which I adore, mm. and he slapped through the whole thing. <laughs> so, uh, lesson learned on that one. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's so thrilling. I have not been to theatre in years. I think COVID kind of mm, battered yeah, that a bit. But tough. yeah, I, I do. And today, I actually, before I came on with you, I was actually watching the Oscar nominations. Mm -hmm. Because it's it's interesting to me to see what media is doing well and what, mm. what our other yeah. colleagues, I would say, are, are yeah. considering as breaking the barriers and, and what's deemed impressive. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel completely overwhelmed by trying to keep up with the new books are coming out, but also the classics. The theatre you want to see, oh, God, lots of it's in London. You know, like, the films, like, this is too much. 
but at the same yeah. time I do I do love it and I do kind of try and you know consume a lot of stuff I am very greedy with my culture and um it gives me yeah a lot of pleasure and a lot of inspiration a lot, a lot of inspiration as well yeah yeah well I myself have a long-term illness that makes me slow down and appreciate yeah. the day how about you like what what's the things that makes you sort of slow down smell the roses and say yeah life's good <laughs> um well, I also was like was really ill when I was um a student I had this kind of mystery illness that uh put me in hospital for a while and then made me like I never knew whether I was gonna be really sick or not and I do think that that um yeah, probably at the time it gives you a sense of like wanting to grab at life with both hands. Um, it does, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it's the same to you. But it also gave me a kind of like I think it was quite a useful anti-procrastination tool actually because I was a student, you know, like yeah, say it's two in the morning, whatever. And then after that, I knew that if I was well, I could do some work. And I never knew when this fever was going to come, and so it made me just like really get on with life in the moment. Yeah. And that was an incredible incredible lesson to learn and has been very useful working as a journalist and as a writer when you have these deadlines and you, know, you could procrastinate forever but you also just absolutely need to get on with it so I think that like that gave me a kind of like determination to squeeze yeah. the most out of um life and then I would say that that thing of like what makes you slow down just uh remind you to enjoy the little moments would be again being in nature huge and then the other one, which is a bit silly, would be my cat. <laughs> but I have I, two. I understand. I yeah. do. I cannot walk past her when she's like curled up in a basket, being cute, without stopping to give a little stroke, say hello. I yep. like. It sounds very cheesy, but it does remind me that like you are literally never so busy and so stressed that you can't just stop and yeah. like fuss your little stupid cat and say some nonsense at it. <laughs> Has yours got like the timing down so it like knows when it's gonna get fed and then it starts harassing oh you around God. about that time? Uh, yeah, about two hours in advance, yeah. Very Yeah, loud. mine's loud. is the same. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, but... it's a nightmare, see if I have a podcast <laughs> and I know that they're supposed to be fed. I either have two options, feed them before the podcast starts <laughs> Or pray that they sleep through the podcast. Yeah, I have had interviews where um, she's walked across the, you know, the screen, and um, yeah, I also once found a line of spaces in my book, and I was like, "What is this? What the hell is this?" And I was like, "Oh, this must be the cat. She must have sat in space." <laughs> yeah, it's. It, I mean, it, they're great for that because they remind me to eat. I am terrible because yeah. if I'm really in the zone, and my husband's not around, which sometimes he's not they will actually remind me they will come up and say yeah, hey mom it's lunchtime yeah oh, crap i've got to eat and so do they and you know it's good um i i need those reminders so i'm i'm grateful to have both of them um because you can ignore one but you can't ignore two <laughs> sure. or at least i've learned that anyway so where's your favorite place to curl up and breed what's your your number one spot to go to um just our front room we have a really nice front room and we have a really nice green sofa and yeah i just like to get on there with the ideally with the cat um maybe the weighted blanket maybe the fire is lit and yeah i just curl up there really yeah i mean i must admit my mother's front room is my favorite because mm -hmm. she had like one of those big wood burners Oh, cozy, yeah. So you'd have like the wood burner, and then you could hear the wind howling <laughs> next to the windows. So it kind of gave you that cozy feel. Mm -hmm. And I'd have a blanket, and then usually a cat or two. 
<laughs> depending if how much my mother had stressed them out. Yeah. <laughs> um, as as parents do, uh, and then I would be trying to read sort of in the morning. I had to read when they were asleep or write when they were asleep because they were terrible for interrupting me. Yeah, sure. <laughs> as as parents are, um, but yeah, no, I totally get that. And now I have to read in bed because it's the only place I get mm. peace and quiet. So yeah. No, I do totally. also love reading in bed, but I have a tendency to just fall asleep. <laughs> it's terrible because like see when you really get into the book and you fall asleep yeah and you wake up and the book's like on your face and your husband's like trying to take it away <laughs> it's like oops <laughs> yeah well you survived the podcast hooray um and you'll be delighted to hear this comes out valentine's day Fantastic. so um it's gonna be a lot of fun Listeners, you are going to want to stick around because we've got some fantastic guests up and we've got some even awesome reviews that will be coming out this month. You're not going to want to miss it. And hopefully Holly will come back when she's got a new book and we can discuss even more about characterizations and world building and really get into what makes books good and what makes books adventurous, but maybe not quite there. And who knows, we may even hear what she thinks of Marie's world. So, come back and uh, have some fun. See you guys all next week.